Welcome to Cow Stories, program by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias. I am happily enjoying life in an unstructured world and uh, doing fun things like executive coaching, DEI work, and serving on boards. I'm Anthony Galloway, partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Holly Lee, owner of The Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. We have a very special guest today uh, to help us really delve into Native American history in celebration of Native American Heritage Month. Um, and we've had her uh, on before, and we're welcoming you back. So please uh, share with us uh, your uh, your background and what you do, Adrian. Anin, um, I my name is Adrian Benjamin, English, and I am from also the <laughs> Malax Band of Ojibwe, along with Don. And I am a full-time artist, activist, educator. Um, I currently am working as a contractor, uh, as a reconciliation advisor for Minnetonka Moccasins. Um, On the side of that, I do my own cultural and, I guess, public art. And prior to all of those fun things, I spent a majority of my career um building and bettering youth programs for my tribe, Lax Band of Ojibwe. And happy to be back. Glad to be asked. Welcome back. back. Absolutely. Sure. So you uh you're a busy person. <laughs> Just with that introduction, you are a busy person. Uh so we're gonna delve into some of that as the conversation uh goes on. Uh, the theme of today is to really understand a uh, really important aspect of celebrations, but also honoring traditions along the lines of jingle dress uh, and the significance of what a jingle dress is, the dance that comes along with it, uh, and all the different elements that are attached to it. So let's begin with the history. It's my understanding that it dates back to the Malax band of Ojibwe in terms of its origin, but help us understand how that come came about um, and how that has uh, evolved. I always like to preface this, and I want to do it here. I do it everywhere when I do talk about this story and talk about uh, the jingle dress. That um, this is Malax's story of the jingle dress that was told to us. Um, one of our most Famous, I'll say even, <laughs> they say he's one of the most famous Anishinaabe um, that that ever was. At this time, is uh, Larry Smallwood, and he was a really um, famous powwow MC throughout the country. He told this story and talked about it and really put it in the forefront and kept it alive um, from elders that told him the same story. So I always like to talk about that first, and I also like to acknowledge that there are other origin stories that come from other tribes about this dress. And a lot of times I've seen people, you know, say, well, it's really came from here. or It really came from there. And from my knowledge of historians and their records, like it really can't be traced to the original beginning. And so what I like to talk about is that I think it's quite lovely that we can think of this dress in the way that it came to our people through a dream and that it possibly came at the same time to a few different places when it was needed to to come to us. And so with that, I will enter into talking about that origin story of the dress. Um, so the story that Mikagabwe when told was uh, started with with an old man in our community here in in, in Mille Lacs. Um, he had a daughter that was very ill, was very sick. And he kept having this dream over and over about these four women wearing uh, these dresses and the way that they talked about it was with metal cones on them. And it made this beautiful sound like rain or like nothing he had really heard before or seen. And this dream had happened over time. 
And finally, he thought, okay, maybe I should tell my wife about this dream. And in this in this dream, he dreamt of these four women wearing four different colors. They were red, yellow, green, and blue. And they were dancing in this specific way. And I know we're on radio, so I'm trying to be as descriptive as possible. So the way that, yeah, <laughs> the way that it's described is that they danced uh, forward, maybe almost in a shuffling motion in an S straight with very straight steps gracefully. Um, they didn't dance backwards. They didn't turn around. And they, when they danced, those jingles uh, made that noise that the man remembered in his dream. So when he did tell his wife about this dream, he, she got together with some other women in the community and they decided that if he had dreamt this that many times that perhaps that these dresses should be made and they didn't really have an answer other than that uh, at the time as to why they just decided to do it. And so some women got together and they created those four dresses and those four colors. And at that time that um, the man's wife showed those women how to dance um, here in Mille Lacs, there are, we have, uh, well, it's part of our culture. <laughs> it's called the ceremonial drum and it happens in the fall and in the spring. Uh, it's a place where we were gifted these drums, um, by the Buana people, which is our word for Dakota Lakota people. And they've been in our communities for, for, yeah, history writes about it, I guess, in, in, in terms um, they decided to bring these four dresses out to at one of our ceremonial drums here in Mille Lacs. And at that time, they brought along their daughter who was sick. And it said that she was laying down. She wasn't very well at all. So she couldn't, you know, it was even hard for her to be at this event. And um, this man got up and talked about the dresses and talked about the dream that he had, why uh he and his wife thought that they should be made and they had those women come in and and show the people and, and dance in those dresses that he dreamt about at that time. And as that night went on, those women danced uh, in the way that he had seen in his dream. And the story is said that as those women danced, that little girl started to perk up. And she started to even participate and got behind those ladies and started dancing with them. And that is our community story of how the jingle dress came to be known, at least as a healing dress and where it came from was from that dream. Um, from that point, the dress was gifted to other reservations uh, in, in different directions in different areas. And uh, we're see we see what we see now across the country with powwows uh, that have adapted and adopted the dress into their own circles and and uh, regalia. So when we think about the jingle dress here, um, one thing that Malax says is we're the home of the jingle dress, but we're also the home of the sidestep because of the type of song that goes along with this dress and the way that it was dreamt about happens here in our uh, big drum ceremonies. So a little fun fact there. <laughs> so it's beautiful. And and so we you mentioned here, Adrian, the significance with the healing power that the dress had at, you know, as a result of this dream that this elder had. Um, so when it's it's used in today's um, time, then does that healing expectation or our blessing still come through is that still part of of the the ceremony of of having these dancers come out uh with their uh their jingle dresses i think it can be i think in different like it's become so popular now in powwow circles and just across the country that sometimes people just wear it in contest powwow and I don't know that there's too much teaching behind it but to those that know the teachings and and you know for, especially here in Malax like we we understand what that means to wear that dress and you know the the origin behind it and the power behind it too 
Um, one thing that I can share that I, I've personally seen growing up um, is there was there was a time at Lax Paul and Don, perhaps you were there or no remember this, but uh, there was an elder who actually had a heart attack at at the at the annual powwow. And at that time, I mean, when the ambulance was there and that specific individual was being loaded up into the ambulance, even they called out all the jingle dress dancers to come and dance for that, that, that man. And I remember he survived that heart attack. And so for me, I was always like, like, it was just, you know, it was like a moment because I'd always heard the story. And I guess when you're in the presence of it and you understand it, like it has just a different power and feeling. And I mean, even just um, recently I was giving a presentation at Central Lakes College in, in Brainerd. And um, I mean, most of the folks that gave comment in the audience were talking about the way that it made them feel. And I think that that really speaks to the depth of, of it. Whether you know the story or not, I think that people just, it, it just brings a different feeling for, for people. But that's one time I do remember. And I remember just being blown away, like, and sat, that was a long time ago and that elder has passed away now. But I remember he did live quite a few, many years after, after that happened. And I always remember that and talk about that story when I'm asked about the jingle dress too. I remember that, you know, I, uh. I think it was during my second stint as commissioner when that happened. And um, because he was a well-respected elder in our community. And I was shocked. I wasn't able to attend uh, the powwow, our annual powwow. And I'm going to explain that, too, because some I think I think often I know exactly what you're talking about, Adrian. But when when we're talking with others outside our community, that there are there are um Adrian mentioned three different types of powwows. And she mentioned the competition powwow. And if you ever attended one of our powwows at Hinkley, that would be considered a uh competition powwow. And and uh those kind of happen throughout the country. Um Shakopee has a, a very big one. Uh, unfortunately, it's usually the same weekend as our annual powwow. Um, and our annual powwow is more of our traditional powwow. And uh, so we actually have different powwow grounds. So we have one at Hinkley for the for the huge competition powwow. And there's usually dancers from all over the country that come and compete. And then for our traditional powwow, that's in our powwow grounds over on the west side of the lake. And it's much smaller than... Um, then the competition powwow on Hinkley, and that is where that incident happened. And I, I remember that. I mean, that that was stark. I was not there, so I did not know they had called the jingle dress dancers to, to do that. And that's that would have been one of the only reasons they did that at that time for him. Um, and then Adrian mentioned the ceremonial powwow or a big drum, and that's. That's that's something totally different, and it has nothing to do with the other powwows. And and it's, I mean, even when we talk about that, the evolution of that, because when I was younger, growing up, um, we didn't have all those different types of of uh, powwows. We didn't have these competition or whatever. They're about about a cup a mile or so down from our reservation, maybe even a couple miles down, there used to be a location called Fort Malax. Do you remember that, Adrian, or were you too young? You remember that? And it was it was a tourist place. And mm. and so um it was somewhere you could stop on 169, you could get a little bite to eat, and then they had, you know, Indian artifacts in there that they sold to the tourists and they would Malax band members would be invited down um, to come dance for the tourists. So we would see people dance there. And then as Hold you up, was that run to, by the tribe or no, that was, 
that was run by a, I think by a separate family that actually. I remember owned school that. trips huh. to to that. I think I remember. <laughs> the, the, I think like e- once a year, like we'd all get shipped up to 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 go by there. Yeah. I have this memory that's just like in the back of my mind. I got to text the phone. Flip phones. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> so any so <laughs> so then, anyways, as you got closer, when you actually got to the reservation, there was a trading post, and that trading post also would employ or bring in Malax band members to dance, and they also were dancing for tourists. So, I mean, I mean, and. That is back when I was, I mean, I was very young. So this would have been, this would have been like the late 50s, 60s, um, that those things. And then through the years, it's evolved. And now we have traditional, we have these competition, but the big drum has always been there. Um, And for a long time, um, it was very secretive. As a result of a wounded knee in 1890, uh, the United States um, passed passed a policy regulation that uh, forbid Native Americans from practicing our spirituality in this country. So uh, a country where we're taught in grade school was built on religious freedom. They never did tell us that while that was happening, that we were the only individuals the original inhabitants of this country who could not practice mm-hmm. openly their spiritual beliefs until uh, 1978 so a lot mm-hmm. of those things went underground so the big drum was always around but we never you didn't talk about it um you know we were taught not to talk about such things around folks that weren't from our community i mean you know that's just the way it is but the jingle dress has been, I mean, I remember the jingle dress. You know, I've mentioned before that one summer, I was 10, and I spent the summer at Mille Lacs with my great-grandmother. Her name was Annie Sam. I can't, I don't remember her Indian name. She chewed Copenhagen. Now, there's probably many that are listening that have no idea what Copenhagen is. And, and Copenhagen was just the name of a tin of snuff, chewing tobacco. And it came in a round kind of cardboard container, but the top of that container was made from tin. And it had the name Copenhagen stamped on it. Well, she, my great-grandmother chewed that snuff, but she kept the tops of those containers the, and they they were round. She would then I was I would watch her because she she did all kinds of stuff. But she she would take the tops of those Copenhagen containers and she would roll them up. And I couldn't figure out. So you know you know what a bugle looks like the bugles that we used to buy. Well, she would roll them up and it would kind of look like a bugle. And then after she put would roll up all these different Copenhagen things she started attaching them to a dress so i was actually there witnessing her put together jingle dresses and but it was such it was just something that that she did and those dresses i had always seen women wear um, for powwow so i didn't think anything about it other than the fact that she chewed snuff and kept the tops. I mean, I think that was the thing that that stuck with me most. But, um, you know, not knowing the importance of uh, what she was doing and what she was making. And um, so I've been, you know, I've seen those jingle dresses for a long time, but never knew the story, you know, until a mix started sharing that when he was emceeing different powwows. So are you a jingle dress dancer, Adrian? Yes, I am a jingle dress dancer. And um, I would, I'll I'll add to your story. I'll see you one more of, of that and, and the unknowing of it. So I just, I've been kind of having these thoughts about 
uh, Larry and Amikagawi when, you know, being one of my mentors and how this story was so important to him. He was somebody who really pushed me to sew and to learn um, more about our culture, um, gifted me much knowledge. One of the things that I was thinking about in my, you know, life was I, my great grandma, her name was Hannah Benjamin. My grandpa was Oliver Benjamin and I spent a lot of time with him when I was a kid. And one of my earliest memories, and this is also a kicker for me that I'll share, is that I can remember going to visit her at the nursing home and she also chewed snuff. And um, (laughs) whenever we leave there, and this is crazy that I even remember it, I remember her always like she had this little drawer next to her bed and she would open it and she'd have a bag full of those those uh Copenhagen tops and she would always like point at me because she couldn't speak English she only spoke Ojibwe and told you know was telling my grandpa in the language like these are for her we'd get out to the car and you know here he'd hand me the bag and I would walk out to the car and I'm like five six whatever like age you can remember at earliest because I have no idea how old I was but I was always like why do I want these? They smell and like, cause she chewed wintergreen. I remember it. I could tell the smell. I'd never forget it. And I was just like, why would I want these things? They stink. And what am I going to do with it? You know, these metal things and they're all gross and whatever. <laughs> and I remember my grandpa being like, she wants you to make a jingle dress. And I just like, I and now when I think of that memory and just how blown away it makes me with like how interconnected the dress has been in my life. And like, even being here to talk about it and just, you know, I, I make them for a lot of people now across the country and just how, like, I had no idea that, but, you know, and it just, I mean, it speaks to even the power of that dream, man. I had a real big moment when I thought back to that memory, I was like, wow, like it was there from the beginning (laughs) and I didn't even think about it, you know? That's beautiful. In the Hmong culture, we have something very similar to the the jingle dress. It's our coin um, uh, clothing. Um, and it's so funny. Like I, I was walking through Hmong Village with an Indigenous friend just the other week. And and we were talking about it. And she looked at the Hmong and she's like, so this is your jingle dress. And it's like, it's very similar, you know. And so I don't know the reason, the meaning behind the coins. There's like different theories out there for the coins one is that um they're if you look at the very very old clothing it's their french coins because the french were colonizing laos at the time and so they would pay Hmong farmers to farm and harvest stuff for them and they would pay them these coins that were of no use to the Hmong farmers so they started using them as decorations on their dress like that's one one of the theories but um, a lot of it used bandao, like the cross-stitching. And so growing up, we had, we as the girls had to do that. Like every summer was spent at my grandma's house doing bandao, right? Um, and so is that something that you grew up with? Is that something that happens within your community? Like within ours when we were younger, like, you know, having to make our own um, dresses? I would say yes and I think that maybe I don't want to say that the value of making has like lessened but I think that the understanding of the actual what goes into the making has maybe went away a little bit more because nowadays like you can buy pre-rolled cones Mm -hmm. I buy pre-rolled cones for some people like I feel like it's this artist thing where they're like I rolled my own, you know, they have this like, yeah, for Hmong people, like there's now machine made bandao, like it just goes through the machine and it comes out perfect. There's no wrong stitch, like when we do it ourselves, right? And people will pay more for the handmade stuff because there are the imperfections. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I make a lot to me rolling it is is one thing because I just think like like if you if when I think about value and what it was prior like even what Don was talking about right like if we're talking about snuff chewing I'm not I've never been involved in that sport but I can imagine to chew three to four hundred snuff 
cans worth of chew would be a lot, right? And to just think about like the cost even and just how, you know, I mean, Anishinaabe people were definitely not well off in those days. And to think about, <clears throat> I here's where I'm going with this the idea of value, right? And these coins and this, these things that just probably could have took them somewhere and had some kind of, you know, got something for the tin, but instead they're, they're putting 300 or 400, uh, onto a dress or, you know, if there's a kid, 200 people ask me about that too. Well, how many go on a dress? And, um, my wife, I used to, would just say until it looks good right? Like that, because there's a lot of stories out there too that were like, oh, well, we have one for each day of the year. And then I've heard like, you know, other people go, well, we didn't even follow a, you know, the Gregorian calendar. So where did that come from? You know, and stuff. (laughs) So it gets interesting when you talk about it. But to me, that was the teachings that I was given is like, you know, you're also mindful if like a dress is someone's um, like first one, like you don't want to have it be too heavy for them where they they're not used to that too. Cause I mean, it is an athletic activity <laughs> to say the least to dance, but yeah. So I think it's interesting. Cause I mean, I, like, like I said, you can buy them now in bags of a hundred already pre-coned versus I can imagine like, I mean, just man, like what I would, the way I look at it now thinking of like to to even have a bag of my my grandma's old rolled cones now you know versus you know to think that that's what they invested in and they and they saved those and they they thought of that and they had those thoughts of that and just how long it would take someone to even accumulate that many snuff lids right so I just think about that but yeah nowadays they are rolled and it is something that I definitely grew up with I think I made my first dress when I was um like 13 and I had some friends that were a little more apt to it than me and I remember I just took apart one of my grandpa's old shirts (laughs) to try to figure out how to even put something together like that and it's like yeah I tell this story because it's funny too because so I was the Malax princess. And maybe this is a context that might need a Dawn explanation further to <laughs> not a forever title. It's like a, a once in a year, kind of an ambassador role. But, um, I was a Malax princess when I was like 12, 13. And I, the, they had you take like professional photos. Right. And, um, I'm wearing this dress and so it never goes away. I hate it. And I'm like, Oh God, that's the first one. It was, it was like, (laughs) you know, like nineties all the way. Like it had a satin collar and whatever. Yeah. But that was modeled after when my grandpa's old, like button up shirts that I found in his closet. And it's it's forever in the old D one center, a picture of me wearing that dress is in there as Malax princess. I'm always Good, good, humble reminder of the beginnings of my tangle dress making there. Did you save it? Did you save? Do you still have that dress today? I don't. I I have moved so many times in my life that I don't. I wish I did. Maybe it exists somewhere out there if I spot it someday at a Powell or at a museum or something. I'll know it for sure. Like, because it's white and blue satin. And yeah, I would never forget it ever. <laughs> Yeah, I think about the sentimental value of that all, right? And and the memories that come with it, uh, and certainly the sentimental value that it was your uh, grandmother's tins, you know, and the care that she took to put it away for you, but also the love that she must have been thinking about as she was putting this together and knowing that you would then at some point in your life uh, wear them uh, with pride, you know, knowing that it came from your grandmother. Yeah, I, I think about that as you tell that story. Now, we talk about quite a bit in, in, throughout our segments about appropriation. So the question that I am asking you next goes to that. Can anyone wear a jingle dress? Um, and when I say anyone, I'm thinking folks outside of the Native community. Uh, it, it's not lost on me that we just celebrated Halloween, and we we take a lot of intentional steps here to make sure that folks... Uh, don't begin to appropriate uh, things that they shouldn't. So can you speak to that? Well, first I'm going to ask Don to talk on that because he's the elder here. I always, when it comes to the rules, I'll I'll give that one first to Don, but I'm happy to talk about what I was taught to. 
I think that you should just go ahead and jump in because, you know, that one, that one becomes interesting because I don't remember any particular stories about those kind of things. What I remember, Adrian, what I remember being taught is that we gifted things. And so it, it wouldn't surprise me if one of these was gifted to someone outside of our community. Now, appropriation in terms of how we mean that now, I think, however, is totally different. And because I personally have never seen anyone, although I think I've heard like there's that running man, uh, burning man, running man, whatever, <laughs> or, yeah, and so, and that's because I'm an elder, right? So, so where where there might be people who who imitate that kind of stuff, then then I think it's inappropriate because they don't know the significance of what they're doing, right? But I think that if someone was gifted it, that they usually then are told the story behind it, and I think that then it has uh, much more meaning. But I'll I'll sit back because you know I just you know there's so much involved with what you're talking about. You know, I would beg to say that my great grandmother didn't chew 300 cans of Copenhagen, but I'm sure there were other elders, and it sounds like elders in that generation. A lot of them chewed snuff as opposed to smoking, and so they would collect those things. But the other thing that stuck out to me, and then I'll turn it over to you, is that my great-grandmother not only made the jingle dress, but she also made the moccasins. That That is what you did. I mean, that's where our clothes came from, right? A lot of our clothes were made, and, and, and the women made those items, and my great-grandmother was one just like yours who didn't speak English, but would spend all winter and spring making all this stuff. I don't remember who got what from the moccasins to the dress to the cones. She did that, and our people did that. I mean, that that's how, you know, that that's what they did. Yep. I've used stories similar to what you just told about how um, specifically and, you know, location-wise, Anishinaabe made their money through those spaces too, like Fort Mille Lacs and the museum and even how those types of dances truly were kind of an evolution of a powwow, right? We didn't kind of go back to that, but I just wanted to touch that real quick. Um, so... <laughs> My answer when someone asks if anyone can wear a jingle dress is no. Um, I think that there's, I mean, and that's not even just from the Mille Lacs perspective, but I think I've, I've, I've listened to stories from the other communities that, you know, claim the home of it and, and their or, own origin stories about it. You know, it's, it's a process uh, for some folks that you know back back in a long time ago it was like regalia was something that was also dreamt about um and i've gotten asked that question before they're like you know you make all of these things you make these dresses and you know and in, in old days this and i also look at it from a creator's eyes um and i don't mean like i'm i'm get you want to do over here by any means <laughs> just an inside joke with don sorry but i i look at it like as a maker let's go there and like, I think of these things, like if someone talks to me about a dress that they want to have, or if they're already a, a seasoned dancer and they have, the, you know, their, what if it's their tribe has a, you know, a right of passage to wear those dresses. If it's dreaming, if it's that they, they did A, B, C, or D, or they were gifted one from their grandparents and said, Hey, that you should wear this. Then I'm only doing my part as someone who has those visionary skills as an artist to create and bring that to life like that's how I look at it in terms because people are like well if people aren't dreaming of this they should make it themselves but to me that it's an art form of, of reclamation in itself as well because not everybody was as uh lucky as I was to grow up with 
right? Or to understand the teachings or to come from this place that I come from to learn the deeper meaning of the dress, um, to have teachers that that took me under their wing to teach me sewing and make me better at it. So when I think about it too, and someone comes to me and they're like moved by it, or I always wanted to be a jingle dress dancer, like who am I to take that opportunity away from them? Like to me, I should give them that opportunity as a maker. Right. And to go back to the appropriation question, I think that specifically why it's a hard no, when it comes to a Malax perspective, maybe on the dress is that because it is such a sacred thing that came from that dream and that, um, it's just like other regalia, I guess I still, I, I don't know that I see too many other people trying to do that. I think it's more of a question than actually something that is a want or has happened outside of Burning Man. <laughs> but like, <laughs> um, I, I, I have had someone ask me one time and I didn't know how to take it cause it just felt weird. And I like to tell it because I think it gives a perspective on why it would feel that way. But I had someone ask, could you just make me a dress? I would never go out in public anywhere or go try to, you know, join in a powwow, but I might just dance at my home with it on. This is a non-native person that asked me that. And I was like, um, you know, I just, why? Yeah, like, I trust that. <laughs> I'll, thank you. Like, I don't know. That, yeah, it just was not good. It wasn't yeah. the vibe, you know? So it's like, for what? Like, what's the purpose there? Like, and if... I, if you respect the teachings and whatever, like let those folks that are the jingle dress dancers heal that and like do those things. I don't understand the the whole like, I guess, needing it for yourself. Like it just can exist and be something special to the, you know, indigenous or the Anishinaabe people and like respect the story. I don't know. I just think it's interesting when people are like, but I want it too. Or that, that story mm-hmm. It's like, I won't wear it outside or just try to do anything crazy, but let me just wear it at home and dance around. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak <laughs> to the un- better understanding of that happening. And I'll let y'all go. Cause I know that was a touchy well, you, one. Like, <laughs> no, you spark a good, a really important question. Like you, you, you create fashions, you know, with the, with the beaded fedoras and, and the shirts and things like that, that are stuff that somebody would wear in public. And right? can wear, and, and, yep. and can wear, right? This, this from the moment you talked about it, it sounded like it was something for a function, for ceremony, for for you know a, a particular thing, and that notion of needing to have a piece of of somebody, like like those are some some. I think those are some of the deeper conversations that we aren't having because we stay at the surface from what we can see, the food we can eat, the 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 cultural things I can point to at the top of the iceberg. But down at the bottom, I think you're hitting on a mental model that that is really important, right? This 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 need for historically to have a tangible piece of something to put on your wall. I, I feel the same way when I walk into folks' households who ain't got no connection to Africa whatsoever. <laughs> and you and you see all of these 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 masks in 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 statues and stuff like that and 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 the question becomes why what is the need to have a piece of a thing and i think you know we we have to be uncomfortable enough to to ask is that the piece of us that we have soaked up and learned in this society that says that anything that is non-white normative, I, I I need to treat as an object that I can have a piece of. I want to. I, I I run into the same thing when in 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 drumming, the djembe, what the djembe represents. Um, and I'll see people. You know, I walk into classrooms and see people with a djembe there, and they have like a cup on it, or they set a clipboard on it, and I'm like, yo, what the hell are you doing? Like like disrespect. Like there's 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 this this. There's that thing, and I think it's worth unpacking because that is the that is a a a, a marker of something that can go much deeper. Um, I've you know where 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 am I in a relationship with some? Uh, you you we open the door, so I'm gonna go there. Am I in a relationship with somebody because I truly love them, or is this an extension of that piece of me having a piece of that culture? And I'm dating interracially because of the novelty rather than the meaning or, or you know, the, the person. Like, like, there are these things that get real tricky in that in that regard. So I, I, I appreciate the conversation. 
yeah, like I think that it's it's it is it goes super deep because I it opens questions for me too on just like I said there's there's a huge why there and like I think it's an understanding of of this like because here's another thing and this is something I talk about too with like um cultural appropriation in fashion or there was there's a um <laughs> my my coworkers at, at Minnetonka actually brought it to my attention they were talking about Gwen Stefani being called out for her Harajuku brand and talking about there was a, uh, a a quote that she said but I've always felt like I was from I was Japanese and it's like what is that goes super deep for me because I'm like all the stuff that I had to hear that I had to watch that I learned that I unlearned and things that I like were talked about like my family or just you know all the stuff with court cases with Malax and like who's standing with you on the, during those times when we can't, can't speak our language, when we can't um, even practice our big drum and all this other stuff like that. But then it's cute when it's on a Minnetonka shoe or you want a piece of it when, cause that dress sounds and looks pretty. I think that's, it's going somewhere way deeper that like maybe it's another show, but like <laughs> I understand that completely because it does bother you because it's like and I and I always say too there and I think what you said about your drum this for me I fail to find the words often like in English that in common culture and I use that term not saying like like in like common culture as in like pop culture right that can even equate to the sacred understanding of that dress and same for your drum right where you would be just like how are you going to do that how are you putting something on there like that you know what I mean whatever like I think it's just that understanding and what makes it just you know there's been so and I think this another itchy point is like there's been so many things taken and colonized and like you know we want this and that and the other thing and I think it's okay for cultures to say like this is ours this is something we do and it's okay that that part that part not for you you can watch it and be a part of it but it doesn't have to be yours like if you brought me into you know a a ceremony of yours like I'm not going to go practicing that that's not mine to practice you know like it's Mm -hmm. just that kind of a thing I think it's 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 so common to just take in colonized culture that it's not even a second thought but to folks who are very deeply still connected in their communities we don't have that same mentality and so it's like you know and it goes back to what Don said earlier those things all went underground because of that because of that very reason because Mm. a it was illegal but b also like they they never wanted somebody to ever try to come and take that and perform it at Burning Man it's not for that you know it's for (laughs) for the community it's for healing it's it's our way of life. It's a tradition. It's as sacred to us as church or whatever, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's just such a, and to get that understanding across, I've yet to find something to say, like, it's like this. Cause I don't know that there's, I don't want to say there's little sacred out there, like an understanding because everything has been so globalized and, you know, like pirated like that, but it truly is when you come from a community that, has their own stories and really was able to hold on to their cultures and the the small things that they have left through all of that genocide and whatever else. Um, it's, it is, you know, like this can, this can just be ours. And that's how I feel. I think the elders and I feel about the jingle dress too. You know, it's like, it's just, just, that's the thing. (laughs) I'm, I'm curious in the intersection side, a beautiful thing happened in, in Duluth. We were, um, doing a show called Kumbaya, the Juneteenth Story, Rose McGee's play. And there's there's scenes at the beginning where where uh, traditional African dancers, uh, uh, trained traditional African dancers, uh, you know, uh, do a scene. Um, and we were sitting in the rehearsal space and in, in the play she has an, uh, it's like begins modern times and then goes back and tells the story of, of, of captive Africans finding out they're free in the United States on June 19th. But, but there's this, there was a jingle dress dancer 
who attended the school and she was she was in the play doing some some spoken word and kind of and she and she and she did some some piece kind of like this this exchange but we're sitting in the rehearsal and the the drummers are getting together and they're talking and mix it up as folks do and then the dancers begin to mix it up and then just there is this moment where there's this intersection of appreciation of this dance is for this thing. This dance is for this thing. And there's an exchange there that that melded together. And it was very different than the folks who are going, oh, that's nice. Will you dance for us? Like there was this like real exchange. And I'm just curious where or if there have been moments where where the sacredness of the jingle dress has met a sacred tradition of some, you know, from 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 a different space. And you've seen it kind of be representative or be connected. I'm I'm trying to get a sense of like if jingle dress is is this where where is a proxy similar similar and that's the closest that I've seen. I'm gonna go real deep and emotional right now because it's just happened <laughs> recently. But like, um, a little bit of my backstory. So my my oldest daughter has uh, a cerebral palsy and does is nonverbal. Um, that's been a huge part of my life. She's a wheelchair user. Uh, has been in special ed through her whole educational career. And just last week when I was doing a presentation on the jingle dress at Central Lakes College, a whole class, um, uh, a special ed class came to the presentation. And when I talk about appreciation, <laughs> there the a mic was given to a young man with Down syndrome. And I was ch choking back on stage, honestly, just because I ha I think in our culture too, we raise up special needs folks as like the highest, right? It's almost more than an elder respect level of like the love and care that we show those, those folks. And um, <laughs> he was just like saying so many words and I just thought that that was just the deepest connection that I've ever seen in that context he's like colors wind beautiful feeling feel good me and he was just like speaking on it and I was choked up and I just thought like for me it was yeah, like man. oh my daughter brought that you know or like mm -hmm. and then we offered up a moment at the end of that um presentation and like all of those kids came down and we're just jamming like, and we're so thankful to, we had a, um, I talked about the story. I'm all teared up here. And I had a couple of singers and then a dancer and, um, they were just, just, these two young ladies were so grateful. They were just like, thank you for letting us come, um, dance up here and for the story and just for sharing that with us. And it was so beautiful. And I was like, like just that was for me was like if you catch a what a appreciation and honest love looked like like that was it for me that day was like especially when that young man took the mic because it was just like uh, yeah there's nothing there but it just the explanation of what it made him feel that day watching hmm. that and and hearing it and seeing it and I was just like damn that's that's beautiful yep. <laughs> so what hmm. I think about that yeah it was and I was I'm still touched and I was like, wanted to share that on like my social media too. But I'm like, you know, I mean, so I'm a mother. I understand what the, all of that looks like. But I think, you know, people can be like, well, just because it's that, it's not, spe it is special because that's our culture and we value that. But, you know, I don't want people to think, oh, it's just sharing it because I'm like, no, that for me was like the best presentation and day I'll ever have. Cause I don't feel like there's any like folks on this earth that are closer to love and perfection than special needs folks so that was it was it was super dope <laughs> I don't know how to describe it other than that it was very moving so to speak to an appreciation versus appropriation that was it right there <laughs> back in the late 60s early 70s here in the Twin City I was born and raised in the Twin Cities but I was fortunate enough to be one of about 15 to 20 Native American students selected from Minneapolis public schools. And we were, we were pulled out of school for a quarter and we acted as tour guides for what was called the Indian art form and tradition show, which was put together by 
some key individuals in the Twin Cities, Ron Libertas, who was Native American. And I don't know if you ever heard of him, um, Adrian. And there was a, I think it was Gerald Visner, but key, key Native American folks who would kind of were recognized as artists. And the one thing that I remember and retained from that is that the all the objects that were displayed were items that were made by those communities for a purpose. They weren't made to be art. You know what I mean? So we can we can look at a spoon carved out of a bone from a buffalo and and people can look at that and view it as art, but it was a utensil. It was okay, nothing went to waste. And so when I think of the jingle dress and I think of our grandmothers and saving the tin from those Copenhagen cans, nothing went to waste. And and this whole idea of, of these items that were constructed and put together had a purpose and they served a purpose for our people. And I know exactly what you mean in terms of when you get that deep with appropriation. Um, because often our way of life was criticized. Our way of life was, was, was you know, they created boarding schools to get rid of our way of life. I mean, I just happened to hear on on the radio a, a program <laughs> that was created by all means by Ampers Radio. And I'm listening and I'm hearing people that I know. Freedom Porter <laughs> was on it. Um, and, and I'm blanking on his name. Travis Zimmerman? Travis. Yes, the story they were talking about were were the code talkers and that there were members from the Ojibwe community who served in the service and served as code talkers. So when they talk code talkers, all you hear is about is is about the Navajo, but there were Native American speakers throughout the country who served as code talkers. And and um even though they tried to wipe our language out through the boarding schools, even though they tried to wipe out our way of life through the boarding schools. And so when, when, when Adrian talks about that level, that level of deepness, because people don't want to live through that or, or, or experience that they just want that nice thing that they see right in this case the jingle dress and so it it i you know <laughs> and when you shared that story um up at central lakes i mean those things are kind of heavy i mean those those are the kind of things that we are still living through that we are still working our way through overcoming that kind of trauma and 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 we're still here i mean you know the resiliency of our people are still here but when when this idea first came up because we're doing this um as a way to for us to honor uh native american our native american heritage month right we get we, we get a month right and 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 so uh but the the actual suggestion was to talk about the significance of the jingle dress and star blankets and star quilts. And so when I reached out to you, Adrian, and I asked you, you know, I said, gee, can you talk about the jingle dress? And I kind of thought you could because you were a jingle dress dancer. But I was also wondering if you could talk about the star quilt. And you and I wasn't even thinking about that and I, you know, that all goes back to our Indian art form and tradition show. Cause even during that, uh, the one thing that kind of stuck with me is that the tribes throughout the, uh, the country kind of use different forms. So when we, when we look at the design of our 
things up here in the Midwest, in the, in uh, Minnesota, and and throughout with our people, um, we use a floral design. But when you move to the to the west and you move further west and to the southwest, um, they use more geometric designs. So without even thinking it, it was your answer, you said, well, yeah, I can talk about the jingle dress, but it will take a Dakota Lakota person to talk about the star quilt. And as soon as you said that, my mind went, duh, <laughs> star quilt, right? That's not a design that we use. And um, and and so even for me, it kind of, you know, the, when that suggestion came out, I didn't even think about the differences. But just between those two and and the significance that there are many things throughout Indian country that folks tend, I think, sometimes tend to think are, are generic um, for one large group, and they're not. There are so many differences in our communities, and, and the, star, the star blanket and jingle dress is just two examples of that. There's a, there's a fun... Um social justice word for that of called they say pan-indianism now don that's what they say <laughs> stuff like that that occurs when you know everybody just oh, oh that's a good pun blanket something uh to one <laughs> or all specific tribes <laughs> well we've got um quite a bit to talk about in the future when we think about uh star cults uh when i first uh suggested the two themes uh, for our discussion, um, you know, we thought initially we could do both in one segment, but clearly um, each of them deserves its own segment. So we are so grateful uh, for you and to you, uh, Adrian, for your time, for your knowledge, for sharing your knowledge, sharing your, your gifts with us today. Uh, but I also want to make sure that we highlight um, that you have your own website, you know, that you are an artist. Uh, but in closing, I wanted to offer you an opportunity to to say any closing remarks that you might have before we we end the segment. You know, I I did spend a lot of time talking about the jingle dress and why that that is sacred and something that maybe other people shouldn't wear isn't something to be appropriated. But you know, I'm I actually just recorded a segment with the Native Governance Center specifically around appropriation and how to avoid it, how to you know, do better as a, as a um, buyer or in, you know, when you're shopping markets, you know, I, I think the best thing is to do homework and to speak to artists, to buy directly from artists that are, you know, specifically from tribes that it's not just something that, you know, cause anything just like can be, you know, they can say it's this or say it's that, but I think that, you know, I mean, for me, jewelry or anything that has a story behind it, it's always more meaningful and I think that, you know, when you do buy from an artist, they do know and are very aware of things that are maybe ceremonial or culturally, you know, very significant and shouldn't be sold to you. And so if you're going on a website that's a public website, most, you know, 95% of the time, those artists know and are going to, you know, can you buy, you know, this item, this item? And you can always ask questions, you know, and be be an educated consumer to know those things, you know, because there are beautiful things out there, the beadwork, the birch bark, um, you know, design work that happens even, you know, with, with my other job with Minnetonka, we're raising up Native artists in design work through that. And those are designs that are for everybody and for everyone to celebrate together. But, you know, there are just certain things that are ceremonial or very sacred and I think that there's a good distinguishment between that and art and it goes back to what Don said about some things are a part of our way of life and not necessarily art even though they're viewed in that way because that's the the, the eyes that we've always viewed uh <laughs> other cultures through right that aren't aren't like us it's like something exotic or you know when it's just it's this jingle dress that has brought in a shabby people and, and other people, uh, indigenous folks, healing and stories. So let's say that as an artist, you definitely want to support other indigenous artists, but there are just some things that, you know, and that's okay. 
and that's okay to, to support too. So there's just fine lines there of just the, that understanding. And I think that comes along with the work y'all are doing with this podcast and work that I'm doing too. It's like, it, we have to educate because we were not educated on these things as we grew up and it was hidden from us. And, you know, we know the reasons now and we can talk about it. So let's talk about it. Well, thank you for those closing remarks. Re- really valuable and insightful and for all of us to really take in and and understand uh, that. I'm Luz Maria Frias, uh, living life, enjoying it to its fullest, and uh, doing some work on the side with DEI, executive coaching, and some board work. I'm Anthony Galloway, partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Helene Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. Amika Gabalikwe, Adrian Benjamin, Lex band member, artist, reconciliation advisor, activist. Thank you so much. Miigwech. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>